May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Um, so just a couple of things to start off with before we get into the sermon proper. Um, some of you may know Paddy Handyside, who's been quite unwell for a while, and um, she has at last died. So she died yesterday morning, uh, which is a relief for her and for her family, really. Although they're sad she's gone. And the funeral will be here on Friday at 1 o'clock. So we've got that far. Um, the second thing, slightly cheerier, was just to say thank you to all of you who came to my birthday last week. Uh, if you have to have one of those birthdays with a zero in it, you might as well bring it in in style. So um, thank you all for those of you who came along and helped me mark the occasion, get my head around it. Um, and I was in another one last night. There's a few of us who turned 60 around this time. So Jocelyn Chewonka is today, and Julie Guest is at the end of this month. So a uh, few of us in the, in the diocese who are turning 60. It was also Jocelyn and Alex's 40th wedding anniversary. So, And their eldest granddaughter's fifth birthday. So we had a 105th birthday party down in Rotorua last night. So I'm feeling a bit tired today. Alright, but that's what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the readings. So, I think the readings today um, ask us some big questions around what it means to be a disciple. So I want to focus on two of the readings in particular. Um, the first one we heard from uh, Exodus, and then the second one from John's Gospel. So the Exodus reading... Uh, is a well-known reading. It's one of the two versions in the Old Testament of the Ten Words, or the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments. Um, the Deuteronomy version is slightly different, um, but it's essentially the same. So if I was to ask you what the purpose of the Ten Commandments were, what would you say? What are they about? Not that we follow all of them anymore. The last one's a bit tricky for us, I would imagine. Yep, structures or laws around being a Christian. Is there a purpose for that? Or but originally they weren't for Christians at all, they were for Jews. So that's the important thing. So these are we have taken them on board, but they are in fact the Jewish Ten Commandments. They are entirely theirs, which we have appropriated. So that's the first thing. So from that point of view, what was the purpose? Was there a purpose behind them? Do you think? Or are they just good good laws to have? A guideline to the way we live. A guideline to the way we live. So sometimes people see them as, if we obey these, then we'll be good enough and we might be able to get the reward, whatever that reward is. But in terms of the story, um, they, have a, they have two or three particular purposes, really. So in this story... Um, I'm just going to run through the story up to that point, in case you're a bit hazy about it. So we have, the, we have Abraham, the first of the patriarchs, and he has a son Isaac. He also has another son Ishmael, but we follow the Isaac line. And then uh, he has a son, well, he has two sons, Jacob who's smooth and Esau who's hairy. And uh, Jacob cheats his older brother Esau who's hairy out of his birthright and becomes the dominant one. And Jacob... Uh, becomes the patriarch, and he has 12 sons, one of whom is Joseph, 
who inspires great jealousy in his brothers and he ends up being sold off to slavery in Egypt. And uh, while he's in Egypt, he's very good at interpreting dreams and he's able to tell the Pharaoh what his dreams mean, which is seven years of good and then seven years of famine. Uh, and so he's essentially appointed the prime minister. And um, during the famine, his brothers come down to buy grain. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And eventually the family is re reunited. And the Pharaoh says, bring your family down and I'll give them choice land and I'll look after them. But over time, the pharaohs uh, get a bit antsy about this group of people, these nomads that have come into his empire, into his homeland, and they become slaves. So it's thought that these are part of the slave group that built the Great Pyramids. And then uh, along comes Moses, and Moses is the one who was sent. Um, this is the whole lot of stories around Moses. We'll just skip over most of those. Uh, but he is the one that is sent to take the people of God out of Egypt through the Red Sea or the Reed Sea and um, into the Promised Land. So the Ten Commandments are given in the context of this. The people of God are in the wilderness. They've, they've escaped the powers of Egypt, the powers of empire. They've escaped slavery. And um, they are led by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of, uh, cloud, a cloud of, a pillar of cloud during the day. Uh, and Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and he receives twice because the first time he came down and got grumpy with the people who had made a gold calf so he broke the stone tablets so he had to go back and get a second lot. I found a really good uh, cartoon about this with Moses holding up a tablet saying he downloaded the Ten Commandments from the cloud. <laughs> but I'd already done the PowerPoint when I found it. Unfortunately, it would have been a much better picture than that one. <laughs> So that's the context in which the Ten Commandments are given. So they're given in a context where the people have been freed from slavery and they live in the presence of God. The Shekinah of God is, is there in their midst, in the, in the, in the clouds of flame and, and cloud during, during the night and day. And so... When we read these, these are, first of all, a response to what God has already done. They're not about earning anything. They're not just guidelines. They are, how do we respond to all that God has done? This is how you respond. And they're also guidelines on, well, here we are, this people who have lived distance from God, but now we're, like, God is just there. It's quite close, and it's a little unnerving. Um... And they are quite unnerved about it. So the question is, how do you live in the presence of God? What does it mean to be a people who live in the presence of God? So the commandments cover both of those things. The third thing that the commandments do is that they tell the people of God how they are to be a people of the covenant. So the covenants are at the heart of all of this. The first covenant is with Abraham. So Abraham in Genesis 12 uh, is promised that through his son, and at this point um, Sarai is barren so, and is not having children, through his son uh, there would, he would have a, a multitude of people who are his uh, descendants and through them uh, they would be a blessing. They would be blessed so that they would be a blessing. 
often we can't do the first part, we're like the blessed part, and we forget the second part of this whole story, that the people of God were blessed to be a blessing. That's the heart of the covenant in Genesis 12. So what does that mean? How are you then a blessing? Well, the Ten Commandments kind of laid that out and kind of showed those people what it meant to live in the presence of God, what it meant to respond to God and all that God had done, God's goodness, freeing them from slavery and how they were then supposed to be a blessing. They had been blessed. How were they then to be a blessing for other people? And in fact, that's what the law is about. The Torah is all about that. So, but then there became a dispute within Judaism. With the establishment of the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and then the rites that developed around that, the tent, of the tent of the Tabernacle, and then eventually with the Temple being built by Solomon in Jerusalem, there was the growth of the sacrificial system. And the debate was between two traditions. So the first tradition was the prophetic tradition. And the prophetic tradition said um, that we are to be a blessing. We have been blessed, we are to be a blessing. And so to live in the presence of God meant to obey the laws. And the laws were summarised in Micah 6.8. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Or as the message paraphrases it. But he's already made a plain how, how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbour. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. So that's the prophetic tradition. But opposed to that was the temple or cultic tradition. And that said that to live in the presence of God meant that everything that happened in the temple had to be done right and at the right time. The cult of the temple became all important. And if the cult of the temple was performed properly, then all would be well with the world and you didn't need to worry about all that other stuff. Well, we've had that same debate as Christians, haven't we? We still have that debate. We're still trying to work out what is important. Is it how we live? According to Micah, or is it what we do in church that's important? There are a whole lot of Christians who would say the purpose of being a Christian is to praise God. What we do in church is all important. And the other stuff kind of is a sidebar if you have time. So I've had people say that to me. All the social justice stuff, John, if we have time, we can do that. But the really important stuff is the church stuff. And as Anglicans, we're probably one of the groups that are probably most accused of doing that. Our liturgy has become all important. So saying the liturgy, reading the liturgy, has become the thing that has marked us out. And so as long as we were reading the liturgy, saying the authorised prayers, doing things properly, then all was good with the world, and the other stuff becomes a periphery. There is actually a third option, which is the liturgy and doing all those prayer things then shape us to be a people who live out the prophetic tradition. But too often we divide these and push them apart rather than seeing how the two speak to each other. So we can see that same debate carrying on into our second story, which is the gospel story. 
which is Jesus clearing the temple. So in John's Gospel, this story is very different uh, from the other three Gospels. So the other three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. Uh, they have common sources. Um, their storyline is very similar. Um, Matthew and Luke are based on Mark, it would seem. So they have Mark's basic storyline. And then they have their own sources and a common source which is called Q, which comes from the German, which means source. And, um, and then they have their own sources. So there's a huge lot of common between those three Gospels. So they're called the Synoptics. John has his own storyline. And he has his own sources. So he kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. And one of the big differences between John and the Synoptics is this story in John appears right at the beginning, chapter 3. So all Jesus has done so far is choose some disciples. He's gone to Cana and his mum's persuaded him to turn some water into wine. And then he goes to Jerusalem. So he's basically done nothing up to this point. So this kind of rabble-rouser of no credentials turns up in Jerusalem and starts turning over tables and driving out the sheep and the cows. It's very different from the Synoptic Gospels, which are all about uh, he's established his credentials, he has huge following in Galilee, and once that has all happened, right at the end he goes up to Jerusalem, and this is the act that forces the, the Sanhedrin, the leaders, to say, look, he's trouble, we need to get rid of him. This story is right at the beginning, so they really don't know who he is until he does this. And so the act that in John forces them to kill him is the raising of Lazarus. So two different storylines. So that's the first difference. The second difference is, in the synoptics, Jesus seems to be very aggrieved at the corruption that goes on around what's happening. So... They needed to have money changers. They needed to have people who sold the doves and the sheep and the cattle because the entire cult of the temple depended on it. You can't pay your temple tithe with unclean money. You can't use Roman money to pay the tithe to God. That's offensive. You need to use temple money, Jewish money, clean money. So you had to change your money. It's like you can't use Australian money to pay your New Zealand tax. It's not offensive, it's just not allowed. So you do have to change your money. It's the same thing, you had to change your money. So the money changers played a really important role. You needed to be able to buy the doves and the sheep and the cattle, depending on how much money you were, so you could perform the, the right sacrifices. Without that, the sacrificial system falls apart. So they perform a really crucial point. In the Synoptic Gospels, it's the corruption around that that Jesus is objecting to, rather than those activities per se, because there was a lot of profit to be made. You could have a big markup between Roman money and temple money. You could actually sell those doves and sheep and cows for a big profit. So people were making a lot of money out of that, and Jesus is objecting to that profiteering, but not in John. There's something else going on in John. So in John's Gospel... Jesus seems to be, like Jesus is in the prophetic tradition. If we were to compare Jesus and say, is he in the temple tradition or the, or the prophetic tradition, he is firmly in the prophetic tradition. We can see that because in all the Gospels, 
It's the prophets he quotes, Isaiah in particular, and he is living out the prophetic dream for what Israel could be, to how Israel could fulfill the covenants to restore humanity and renew creation. So here is in the prophetic tradition, and that's particularly true in John's Gospel. So he is standing against the temple cult. So when he goes there, he's not just objecting about the profiteering, he's actually saying, this whole system is wrong. You guys have got this entirely wrong by continuing to say, all that you need to do is perform the sacrifices, you've missed the point. So when he's attacking the the basis on which the temple cult operates, he's attacking the temple per se. The second thing that he is doing is he is shifting the focus of what the temple was about. So I've talked about this in the past, but the first temple, which was built by Solomon, one of the things that marked that temple out was the Shekinah of God, the presence or the glory of God in the Holy of Holies. That was where God was to be found. And then came the exile, the temple is destroyed, people go off to Babylon, the Persians come along, people come back from Babylon and build a new temple. But the new temple, there is no Shekinah. There is no presence of God at the heart of that temple. And so when the people, the Jews, are looking towards the Messiah, one of the things that will be restored is the Shekinah of God to the heart of the temple. The Romans will be thrown out. The true line of David will be restored. The true high priesthood will be restored, not these Hasmonean fakes who are trying to use their position to make money. Um, there, were, there were a whole lot of things that they were looking for in terms of who the Messiah would be. And Jesus, in John's Gospel, entirely changes that around and says, well, John is saying that the Shekinah of God will not return to the temple. The presence of God is in Jesus himself. As John starts his gospel, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The glory of God was made flesh and dwelt upon us. The pattern by which all of creation was made was made flesh and dwells amongst us or tabernacles amongst us or temples amongst us. The Greek word is tabernacle, which we translate as dwell. But actually, it's kind of getting pretty close to Jesus is the temple. So in this story, Jesus is the temple. So he makes that clear. He says, destroy this temple in three days I'll rise it. They think they're talking about the temple that Herod's been embellishing for the last, well, first Herod the Great and then his son for the last 46 years. But he's talking about himself. So, so that brings us back to the question about discipleship. All of these stories are about discipleship. So the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words are about disciples, what it means to be disciples. So what do those Ten Words offer us? Not only in what they say, but in what they're about as ways in which we then respond to how God, what God has done for us. Ways in which we respond to the presence of God in our lives. So it raises questions like, well, where is the presence of God for us? Where do we see God present? Is God far away? 
Or is God with us? And in what ways do we find God with us? And how do we respond to that presence? And then Jesus clearing the temple. Jesus is saying, well, I'm the temple. I am the presence of God. I am the Shekinah of God. And Paul says that we are the body of Christ. So that says, well, we are the presence of God, the Shekinah of God in the world. So as disciples, how then are we the presence of God in the world? The presence of God's justice, the presence of God's mercy, the presence of God's generosity. And all of that is about how we are disciples. So I'd like you for a moment to think about that. How are we, how do these two stories the Decalogue's not really a story, but how does the Decalogue, the Ten Words, and how does the story of Jesus clearing the temple in John's Gospel, how does that teach us about what it means for us to be disciples of Christ, Jesus the Beloved?